Welcome, everyone, to the Literal Fiction Book Club, where we read books so you don't have to. My name is Sam Johnson, and joining me today is Alec. Hello. Troy. Nyvron. And Tom. Hello. This week is our wrap-up week uh, episode for the Japanese Literature Unit. So far, we've learned to enjoy the three main ingredients of the Japanese spirit, koku, depravity, and suicide. There have been many memorable characters as well. The Goshen in Search for Yam Gruul, the outcast Eta Sagawa, the hysterical Kamako and her emotionally distant lover Shimamura, and of course, Noburo and his sadistic friends. We also had the pleasure of learning of Saigo Takamori's Field Rebellion with Mark Ravina and the forces that shaped the major restoration with Beasley. All in all, this unit had a breadth and depth that the others lacked, partly due to our more purposeful selection of books and partly due to the unique and rich experience of the land of the rising sun. Across snowy mountains to see a mountain geisha, to the seaside to kill our stepdad, investigating the murder of a nobleman in a grove. It feels like we've been everywhere on this strange island. So, bye-bye, Japan. But first, how's it going, boys? Good. It's going, man. Like, any time you've had a couple drinks before the start of an episode, it's it's going to be a good night. Also, I, uh, I'm finally watching To Make a Murderer, which I know is like six months old news at this point, but I always feel like <laughs> slowpoke with these things. Like I've, I eventually get around to the TV shows. It's just, I'm going to watch them in my own time. Anyway, it's very good. I'm at the end of season one right now. And most people, I feel like the takeaway would be like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is, this is so terrible. I can't believe this would happen. And my takeaway is like, man, I understand why people shoot at cops. <laughs> like, the cops are trying to set this innocent man up, and the state is literally, if the state wants you, they're going to get you. And, uh, yeah. yeah, Stand in armies, man. Dude, just look, look, yeah. look what's happening in fucking Michigan right now. FBI with the ringleaders in that whole situation with Gretchen Whitner. I don't know anything about that, Phyllis and Alec. Oh, yeah, they arrested 15 uh, militia members for a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan and storm the uh, the Capitol building and hold everyone hostage. And literally, oh, yeah. okay. the person who was suggesting that they, 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 I think, suggested that they either shoot Whitner or kidnap her was an FBI informant. Like, it's a classic FBI status. You know, they do this with Muslims all the time, too. They infiltrate these groups. They find, like, these vulnerable kind of, like, antisocial weirdos and are like, you know, it'd be really tight uh, doing terrorism, you know, <laughs> like they're, they're just like, you, isn't that just entrapment, though? Like, I don't I don't know if like for some reason entrapment, I, I don't understand why they get away with this, because I know they've done it with like they did it with a Muslim guy with a developmental disability. Like that, that's like their, tra- their tactic. I know they've done it with with environmentalists, too. They provided like fire bombs and like been like here here's a bomb just pull the detonator and they pull the detonator and then they handcuff the guy you know jesus christ you know and people want to give more power to the federal government yeah unreal i mean this is james comey's legacy (laughs) oh remember that moment in time when james comey was like the the angel coming down from heaven to save us all yeah He's a bitch. That was a time. He's always. Are you, are you talking about when he reopened the case into Hillary's emails? Oh my fuck! Yeah, dude, I was just reading the timeline of that like what four days before the election. I know. Yeah, he he seriously fucked up. Like that is he should have been fired immediately, no matter who won. Yeah. Oh, but I, you know, I was just like reading the timeline on that again, and like the fucking Weiner Anthony Weiner emails, like it's it is actually really interesting, like 
political drama kind of um or criminal like you know like it, it is kind of a fascinating case and it's so political um i don't know he, he should be in jail along with hillary i mean nobody draws the lines between all these things it's just oh my god there's a breaking news story this guy texted a picture of his dick in his underwear to a teenager and then it's like well like what about all of the other connections that you could make but it just always seems like out of the blue or at least that's the way the media reports it because yeah. they're reporters and not journalists exactly and i mean like they took all the they didn't put any pressure on huma Abedin, even though well i don't know what's going on there but it's not good some people just like cheese pizzas, dude. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Small pizza, extra cheese. Or uh, the uh, the pasta sauce, you know? Yeah. Some or people the... just like getting pasta sauce continually delivered to their front door I... and alert their friends to that fact. I found this pizza-themed handkerchief in my house. Does this belong to you? Oh, man. What the lamest fucking codes? Like, clearly they think they're going to get get away with it forever because... That's like a, you know, I don't know, like an eight-year-old's idea of being sneaky. It's hubris. Like, I just genuinely don't think they ever thought anyone would be reading their emails. And I mean, you know, maybe that's, uh, it's obviously not a reasonable assumption, especially if you're in a position of power, but, you know. I mean, even the same with this case of making a murderer, the cops never thought that anyone would ever question, oh my God, they actually planted evidence. And as soon as they do it, the state's attorney is like, this is so heinous. I can't believe this terrible accusation, how this is going to erode faith in the public. These are decent men. These are family men. Think about their reputations. I don't give a fuck about their reputations. What did they do? Yeah, exactly, man. I mean, yeah, it's so weird that like suddenly like all of our rights are second class to this idea that we need to like appreciate the troops and the, or I mean the the cops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sympathetic to cops. I was trying to be for a second, but yeah. No, I mean, I think they do. I, I mean, I, th- I think that the job of being a police officer is a very difficult and complicated one. And like a lot of times they behave poorly because they're put in situations in which you can behave poorly. I mean, we shouldn't, you know, like the issue is, is that the expectation of a police officer is that they are supposed to be like a moral paragon, but they are in an environment that doesn't even kind of... um reinforce or build that to be true so i mean it's a sucky job like and a lot of them are undereducated and and you know they got it through you know the job through nepotism and um there's that macho aspect to it so i don't know man it just it blows and you know with the making a murderer thing i think like the the issue with Stephen avery you know is one thing but what they do to uh brendan dassey is just like the it's kid just... is borderline retarded. Like they're putting words into his mouth and they have it on tape where he's like, I don't know what I'm saying. Like they got inside my head. Um, I just made that up so that they would let me go. Like it's very clear, but it's the presumption that he can say whatever he wants as many times as he wants to say it. But as soon as he says what they want to say, it's like, all right, that's the truth. We got it. And it's like, what? <laughs> no, he contradicts himself like four times in the same video. And but you just hear what you want to hear. And it's just disgusting to see somebody abuse that power so blatantly. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the that case is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, which is that, um, you know, it's these local cops who don't actually know how to interrogate a person and are 
you know, looking more for a way in which to solve a big case so that they can, you know, tidy that up and whatever, get their their bonus for solving a murder um, rather than, you know, do the decent and right thing. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like I said, how could you expect uh, somebody who's enforcing the law on a regular basis to, to do that? I'm sure there are cops out there who are straight, right? And just do, you know, do their job well, but um, there's too many cops and the kind of people they pull from. I mean, inevitably, you're going to have situations like that. Hey, you talk about the paragon of virtue or the paragon of justice. That's not who it's recruiting. It's recruiting the guy that didn't make it into the army, the guy that didn't pass boot camp. That's the guy that becomes the cop. And or the like, guy who, who went to Iraq and comes back, you know, and we don't want that guy as a cop either. <laughs> that's a lot. That's like a lot, especially like around here. Like it's a lot of ex-military guys. And I mean, I've never had a good experience with a cop personally, but like I know, I don't know. I'm sure Pete, some people have been helped by cops. Uh, and I, I mean, I know I have. I haven't had any issues. You've been, had you've had a many... good, you've been helped by a cop? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've been, um, I was helped by actually a New York City cop at one point. Um, not that I was in danger or anything like that, but, uh, you know, he, I was um, leaving the dorm because I was moving out of uh, CCNY and um, I was running late to my bus and it was like 1030 at night. And um, I, there's a shuttle that takes you from the, the dorm to the bus stop or the, uh, the subway station. And, uh, I had all my stuff with me and I was going down. It was like a big long hill that you have to go down in order to get to the the subway entrance. And so I just didn't have time to wait for the shuttle. So I was walking down there and as I was like turning the corner, this big black dude, I mean, he must've been like six, six, you know, whatever, 250 pounds. I have everything I own on me, you know? And he just like looks at me and then there was a, there was a cop over on the side there. And then he, and you know, the cop waved at me. And then, uh, and then the guy walked away. But yeah, okay. I mean, I guess it's not much, but it's something. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been like accosted by the cops, but I've had like decent experiences where it's just cordial and then they'll let me go. But like when I lived abroad, I felt comfortable going up and asking a cop for directions. I would not do that in America. Oh, just because no. there's such like an aggressive demeanor that they have. Yeah. They're like they always question you as if you're presumed of having committed a crime. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, it's just well, such mean, a like, weird stance for I'm them so to take right that. off the back. Well, yeah. like think about how you feel when, you know, like when they're doing construction and they break it down to like one lane and there's a cop that's directing traffic. Like what's your like reaction to that cop being there? Like, it's almost like if you do anything wrong, like, Oh, he's going to like stop me or like, like that they're automatically going to be confrontational. Like it's not even like a neutral experience. It's almost always negative, even in like nothing situations. Yeah. I mean, I was, I haven't, luckily I've been pulled over a couple of times recently, but it's been okay. But I'm, I, when I first moved to my apartment, I was at the end of my road, which is a private road. It's private property. I was on the phone just because I had no Wi-Fi yet. So I was making a phone call and a cop comes up, puts on his lights and asks me to get out of my car and is asking me like what I'm doing and stuff. This is like my first time in my neighborhood. And uh, I don't know. I just think about that in terms of just like how the fucking bitch was not minding his own business at all. I was, you know what I mean? I was doing literally nothing wrong mm -hmm. in a place I pay to be. And I know this is like the minorest thing to complain about, but like. 
Sure. It yeah. speaks volumes about like the way that they treat people. You know what I mean? That he's trying to. There's a huge difference between solving crimes and looking for crimes. Yeah. Like absolutely. if you're on the hunt for crimes, you're going to find it. Like people commit mistakes every single day, but that doesn't mean they deserve to be shot or accosted or arrested for it. Or even like, inconvenience. Like suck yeah, my hell fucking yeah. Hell cock, yeah, brother. Dude. I mean, like, what about like <laughs> oh I'm sitting in my car smoking weed minding my own business. Like, oh, do I deserve to have my life ruined for that? Does anyone? Like you get a speeding ticket. Like I was listening to someone talk recently about like you get four speeding tickets, your life is ruined. And like it's kind of true. You lose your fucking driver's license, you can't go to work. Like, I just don't understand how anyone can be in favor of that system. And just like the approach is always screwed up. Like, even the situation you're talking about, Alex, like it's not like a cop's walking up to you like, hey, you know, I'm just checking out the neighborhood. Like I'm just, you know, doing rounds or whatever. Just want to make sure everything's okay. And like having a civil conversation where you can be like, oh, yeah, no, I actually live here and I don't have Wi-Fi yet. I'm just making a phone call. And he's like, oh, okay, no problem. Have a nice day. Like it's always like an aggressive undertone right from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I resent even if it was just like a, a pleasant thing and he's asking me what I'm doing. But if there was an assumption that he was going to just, you know, help you part of that serve the public it'll be different but it's not because yeah. it's always like show me your registration license and registration right now like yeah which right, you don't have start to start asking unless yeah. you, unless they have you committing a driving offense dude i this is this is a very new hampshire conversation i know like right. we all know exactly like what you have to give cops yeah, it's just like uh, no. In in the response to it, like I don't want to be inconvenienced, you know. Yeah, I should be able to drive a hundred miles in a, on the highway if I want to, you know, no problem. Uh, you know, I don't need to wear a seatbelt, you know. If I, <laughs> yeah, well, if I'm smoking weed out in the, you know, in the public square, I should d- damn well not be bothered. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and comically enough, I'm trying to live free, dude. Yeah, I'm trying to live free and die. New Hampshire has a uh, higher amount of cost per capita than most states. And our, our cities, oh, I didn't know like that. Manchester and Concord, I always heard have some of the highest cost per capita. I don't know if that's still the case, but when I was younger, it was. like We had, we are actually like a pretty heavily policed state, as odd as that is. Yeah, I mean, I, I've at least, like the only bad experiences I've ever had with police were in Manchester, basically. And like that was more so like the aggressive undertones, but... I mean, whatever. Uh, I don't know. I always feel like I look like their son, so they treat me better. But uh, they, uh, you know, because I've always been kind of like a whatever, like fairly regularly dressed white boy. Um, But uh, yeah, for the most part, it's just like, I mean, it's it's formal, right? Like they ask me the questions, but I I haven't really picked up... um, aggression from them except for in manchester and that one experience was um ben was driving around my old chevy malibu that uh 1998 chevy malibu and um he you know was trying to like bounce around to get it registered and um and inspected and like you know he just got caught one of these times and uh the you know, the cop was like, you can't fucking be driving that around here. You know, you're going to you're going to kill someone. <laughs> I mean, the thing was falling apart, but um, I don't think it had to have been said that way. But well, I kind of get, you know, I mean, I, I get it, too. Like there is an element of public safety that's going on. And especially when um, you don't know how people are going to react. Right. And that's kind of what I was saying before about, you know, like, let's just say, right, like we all are become cops. Right. We all want to be police officers. 
not that we would, but let's just say, like we would be constantly be put in situations where we're dealing with people who are mentally unstable, with people who um, act um, like spontaneously, right? And it act in an unexpected way. Um, people who would respond better to authority, right? Like to being uh, like a, having a dominating presence as opposed to like a conciliatory one. And so I just think the job itself encourages people, even if they do have good intentions, to um, to behave in a way that is uh, is more geared towards um, a specific, you know, group of the population, you know, basically the poor, the mentally ill, the the, you know, the people who are most likely to commit crimes. And so the rest of the public, when they are, you know, interact with the police, um, they, you know, like they're put off by it, like uh, like you guys are. I mean, as someone who has worked with the mentally ill and the disabled for years, like that is like everything they teach you not to do. Like that's called escalation. Like you want to de-escalate situations and coming in from a position like that is always going to escalate it and cause more conflict. I mean, that's the ethos though, is that yeah, they want for cops, you have to be one step above in terms of escalation. You are supposed to use one level of force above what is presented to you so that you can control the situation but, by force. But the thing is that like escalation will breed escalation. That's not going to make a situation oh, yeah. calmer. Like it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like they're only making things worse. And I think they want to make things worse so they can have something to do maybe or hurt somebody. But like, well, no, Alex, that's not I'll, how it works. You know what I mean? Like that's not how well, no, I'm just, but science works. Yeah. Well, the point I would, I would say to you is that like, okay, so you have, um, you have someone who is, you know, not uh, who is young, strong, mentally unstable, who's hitting someone that you can't stop, you know, and brings out a knife. Do you not? Who who are you going to call? What are you going to do? Right. But if they're not de-escalating the situation, how are you going to? Oh, you know? I mean, like I, the whole I, point. But we're talking about we're we're going from zero to one hundred here. If you're in a situation where someone's just being weird. Or like, you know, I'm not talking about in a situation of violence, like I'm talking about in your general day to day interactions when cops are interacting with mentally ill people like. Sure. Yeah. They always they historically will escalate it. They'll escalate it with disabled people like the rates of people with developmental disabilities who are killed by the cops are insanely high mm -hmm. because they come from a position where they're acting like in a position of authority or, a, a you know, a, a dominating aggressive position. And it just always will make it worse. If someone's attacking someone, that's totally different. Uh, I don't know what you do. Yeah, yeah I agree you, with that. you attack. You you fight. I mean, if someone's fighting you, you fight. I don't begrudge cops who defend themselves. I just think that the way they treat other people is is counterproductive and against the uh, basic tenets of what this country is built upon. I mean, yeah, there's no I, criminal justice and, person who will defend an intelligent person who studied criminal justice who will defend the way cops interact with the general public. There's like no scientific backing for it. There's no psychological backing. Like it's not. Oh, I. It's I, not. I 100% agree. Yeah. It's just not rational. Yeah, I 100% agree, and like I'm not. Uh, I'm not defending the the state of um, policing in America or anything like that. Like I said, I just think there are reasons for it beyond like um, the like there there are legitimate reasons for why those things exist that um, don't because really the function of the cops has nothing to do with. Um, keeping the peace right it's uh it's about it's about yeah enforcing the law and maintaining you know public order yeah in and property relations 
Yeah, exactly. I agree. Oh, I agree with that. And I mean, a big thing of a reason I feel empathy for cops is that yes, there's a bunch of crazy people out there, but literally somebody's always packing. So if somebody's on drugs and it's just like, oh, they're gonna pull out a nine, and it's like you have to literally be ready to be in a war zone at any point if they're just going to pull out pistols or rifles at you. But the point isn't that like the people have the weapons. Not so that you then become a paramilitary force to suppress them. The people have the weapons so that you back the fuck off yeah. and you don't decide that you have to dictate every little piece of their lives. It is, it is bizarre how engaged like the state is in our lives. Maybe we can bring this, micromanages. Maybe we can we can tie this into Japan. Uh, but like you know, <laughs> like if you if you think about how many times a day you interact with the state versus like how many times you'd interact with the state in the uh during the meiji reformation if you were a peasant but i mean it is like completely enmeshed in our lives in a we in a way that like if you told our grandparents or great-grandparents they'd be like what the fuck are you talking like it's yeah it's pretty insane i mean america didn't even have like you know whatever during the the revolutionary era or even the civil war era um most people had no interaction with the federal government i mean they're most they're the government relationship they had the strongest was, you know, in their local communities and then with the state that they resided in. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can't do anything. You know, everything has some some sort of state aspect to it at this point. Yeah, they have like building inspectors if you're like adding a room to your house. Oh, God. Like, what is that, yeah. dude? That's ridiculous. <laughs> Come on. Can't do fucking shit. Come on. Especially dude. like... Uh, in Massachusetts, I mean, anytime my uh, when my uncle was um, renovating this house, he had to like demo it into the garage so that the town wouldn't figure out what he was doing, you know? Yeah. Um, and just slowly move stuff out of the garage because he just like basically cut a hole in the floor and just started dumping shit into it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's but if they get you, they fucking get you, dude. It's just so weird. Like, uh it just it just flies in the face of everything this nation was ostensibly founded for. Goddamn right. So yeah, so we we've talked about police, but uh, what about Japan? <laughs> <laughs> no police in Japan at this time, buddy. That's right. <laughs> Sayo Takamori was a A cab kind of guy. Oh yeah, was he was was Saigo trans? Can we have that conversation? <laughs> we Definitely had a pink ball. kimono, dude. He was polyamorous for sure. Oh, definitely, and he had that uh, that piggy lady, right? The Princess, Princess Pig. Pig. Oh mm-hmm. my God, that's right. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. His geisha was like 300 pounds. That was his thing. He was a chubby chaser. The thing is, like, you go to time, you look, and she was probably like 175. And right, yeah. <laughs> everyone was so malnourished back then. <laughs> yeah, she was probably like slightly chubby and skinny by today's standards. Yeah, bro. knowing Japanese or people, it's like, probably. It's like when, um, you know, in recounting like older uh, accounts of um, people's size, right? Like they talk about like these gargantuan men and they're like maybe like six feet, six one or something like that. Yeah, exactly. They don't have roids, bro. Right. Just the Koku. The, just the Koku. That's just all they the got. Koku. You can't, you cannot get huge on Koku. Anabolic rice. I don't know. Some of these Japanese guys are pretty, pretty jacked. Right. But do they only eat rice? No, that's right. They probably eat like squids or something. Yeah. Fuck yeah. So yeah, so like, what do we, what do we think about what we just, we've just finished our third unit, 
um which you know congrats everybody we 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 did it again um four and uh what'd you say alex four or fourth unit french revolution french southern revolution. gothic foreign sci-fi right uh, uh japan yeah. japan yeah so we just finished our fourth unit correct i forgot southern gothic for some reason um so we finished our fourth unit so that's great we're we're on a roll um but what did we think of the whole like scope of what we read do we feel like we had a good balance um between the historical and the fictional um do we think that the um that like we know more about japan than we did before um i definitely know more than before i feel like it was pretty broad but for us as westerners who have no idea what we're doing with japanese history and culture it was like a good starting point I'm glad that we had two um, non-fiction books. So the one at the beginning, Beasley, and then later on, the biography of Saigo. Um, honestly, I could have read a couple more novels in this section just because it was so varied. Like you were saying at the beginning, Sam, like the topics are all over the place. Um, but it was really interesting just seeing the different styles because it was like familiar, but also new because it was like kind of modernist. It was kind of romantic and the uh, over-the-top emotions of some of the books, but it was also like not the same, obviously, because it's East Asian instead of Western European. Like I was satisfied with it as the beginning, but I think we could have added like two, three, four more novels. But you know, we gotta gotta keep moving. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like it was a good balance, in my opinion. I like the fact that we started with the nonfiction. We got an idea of Japan at that time. I learned a ton of stuff that I didn't know before, had a completely different perception of Japan. And then all the novels were unique. And and like Troy was saying, you know, some of them had a little bit of more of a romantic flair to them. Other ones felt a little more modern. Some felt almost like um, not like folk tale but like you could really see the culture of Japan at that time in what was written. And then I, I really felt good about finishing with the last samurai because it kind of went back towards that nonfiction with like a biography. Um, but we had gained all, or at least I had gained a lot of knowledge through the unit and I feel like I got a lot more out of it. Um, so I don't know. I really liked the mix. I liked the blend a lot. I really enjoyed the unit and I liked the fact that it was something totally different, kind of similar to when we did sci-fi, it was totally different than things I would normally read and gave me a completely different idea um, about Japan and just a lot more knowledge of what that country was like at that time period that I just don't think I would have gotten otherwise. I think the um, the nonfiction books complemented each other really well. And I'd like to continue the trend of reading a general history than reading a specific history from like the same period or a biography. Because I do think they they really, the first enriches the second. And in it, in it also makes us be able to look back, you know, and uh, appreciate the first in terms of the novels though um there's like an undercurrent of like emotion they're very emotional novels all three are even the short stories actually they're very sentimental they're very emotional in a way that i've related to honestly um i don't know it it, it felt like yeah i don't know it, I, I was able to really relate to it even though they're like 100 or 80 years old and from a completely different culture i didn't find any of it alien personally like the the feelings especially like starting with broken commandment i felt that it, it, it i don't know it shows that the human human experience is goes over um 
any kind of nationality or whatever. Like I, I liked that. I don't know. Something about that really like stood out to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that all of these novels were just real bangers. Like this really good. Um, and, uh, the, the literary movements that came out of modern Japan, um, had a rawness to them that, uh, and kind of an earnestness about them that wasn't, you know, I mean, I would obviously say it's present in some of the authors that we've read. Uh, but, uh, I, I really did not get a sense that they were trying to be clever necessarily. Um, but it was more of that like kind of raw, hard hitting, um, style but you know in different tones right so you have like snow country which is um picturesque you know more atmospheric uh, broken commandment which has this you know um it's a a morality tale or a tale of like an inner moral um and then of course you have um the sailor who fell from grace with the sea which is like in in the the twisted mind of a child um but they all struck me as as uh, like you know that kind of jumped out to me what you said, Alex, about like them being sentimental. It's just like they're they they have a emotional content to them that's poignant and um, it feels new. And I I think you know part of that, and we've belabored this point for forever. But like you know part of it is just like that kind of rapid change that Japan went through. There you know these authors that we're reading, right, it was their parents, not even their grandparents, who lived in an entirely different world, you know? So, um, and not entirely different, like, uh, like you know, their contemporaries in America, right? Um, their parents would have been in the Civil War, and that indeed was a different time, uh, but it's not the same kind of different as uh, Japan's different, I guess. I would say the thing that surprised me most was the amount of like raw emotion in it so i guess kind of the stereotype that i had come in with was that a lot of japanese culture was just like stoic and reserved where it didn't show any emotion period and that's just like not the case based on what we read like it really does run the gambit from love to hate to longing to well lots of depression and suicide um but yeah i agree that the emotions were a lot more poignant than i expected going in I think I, I I was reading Brothers Karamazov at the same time as this unit, and I think I got a lot out of that. And it made me think that the the, the influence of the Russian writers shows with these guys, but they're just mm. all the novelists are decidedly uh, much more modern than any Russian author, especially Dostoevsky, uh, less so Tolstoy, right? But like it, it's it, the influence I thought showed, and it showed, and it, but it was a and kind of like an improvement on, you know, like all of these novels um, were were attempting to describe something greater than the plot. And usually it was an emotional state, um, or I guess across the board it was, you know, and they, they yeah. may have adhered to their genres or their literary movements, but they were tools in describing the particular emotions or feelings that the authors were trying to, to describe. Yeah, I mean, you said it great, Alex. I I really agree with that. And I think your point about um, especially Dostoevsky's influence on these authors, uh, whether direct or indirect, is is quite clear. Um, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say, I mean, Brothers Karamazov is its own thing, but like when 
<clears throat> the novel that came to mind more so was like Crime and Punishment. Um, and I think that uh, that novel of Dostoevsky's has has a lot uh, stronger resemblance in its emotional content to these other novels. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's worth noting, right, like that none of the novels that we read read this this unit were they weren't epics right you know no war and pieces here not that i assume that they exist somewhere maybe um but of the you know when we were we were looking for novels to read uh we didn't really get any of uh you know any 500 700 pagers uh so that's um there's a lot of oomph right in not a lot of words misha's final work though uh, probably falls in that category. I mean, we've, we've, we've both read Spring Snow, but we haven't read the other three, but it was published. I think that's a little different though, well, right? Because it's like... It was published, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's a tetralogy. Yeah, but it was, what did he call it? It was published like chapter by chapter publicly in like magazines and stuff. What is that called? Serial writing? Yeah, serially. Yeah. Um, but I, mean, I think maybe that would be the comparison. I, I do think Spring Snow feels more like one of the uh, like a Russian writer more than the other two books by Misha Maikrit. I really like Spring Snow a lot, but it's really different from The Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea. Like mm. very different. Yeah, it is quite so different. different. Um, but they're both great. More, one, way more reserved. Yeah, way, way more reserved, but also ex- in still a crazily emotional. Uh, but I would love to just do a Mishima unit. I really think he's like fantastic. Yeah, we can definitely do a Mishima unit. I'd like that a lot. Just read all of his works. <laughs> 40 books oh, yeah dude <laughs> our life's work analyzing his <laughs> analyzing yukio mishua making we all end up with like doctorates and literary analysis of <laughs> japanese literature i mean that just M- mishima studies that would be so sick honestly that photo book and then we can get a ouija board and uh call him from his grave you know Oof. i think he'd cut our Have heads his off ghost commit seppuku yeah. or he'd fuck us actually i think he i think he'd fuck i you know i Why think he'd like we Ooh, there you, there you go, Tom. Why not both? I mean, what's with this one or the other thing? What is it like a la carte? Let's just take both. They call it getting whole, so I, you know, doesn't really matter. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesus Christ. Um, so how do you think this uh this unit re- like compares or relates to the other units that we've we've read so far? Do you, did you like it more? Did you um? Did you think it was a stronger unit than the other ones? Do you think other units, um, you know, I don't think we could really talk about influences here. Uh, maybe it like, I, I don't really see it, but maybe the three body problem, you know, uh, has some, the author, uh, took some inspiration from Japanese literature, but I doubt it. Uh, but yeah. So do we think there's any connections or, you know, do, what do you think about the other units in comparison to this? I think there's some good, uh, non-fiction this unit just because we had two of them and then also because other units i knew the history this one i really needed it like i would have been lost without the non-fiction books um but in comparison like i don't know man nothing compares to carlisle that is just like a titanic work of literature um but i'm happy we read it i just i don't know that we're going to top that one for quite a long time at least in terms of our non-fiction i love how carlisle is like as we remember him more we like him more. I know. Dude, speak for yourself. I liked it while we were reading it. I really enjoyed it. I did not. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I enjoyed it as well, Troy. I enjoyed it quite a bit, but uh, every time I think about it, I like it more. 
And every time I read more his historical works, I like Carlisle more. Uh, it's a it's a di- completely dead tradition what he did, and uh, and the the way in which he pulled it off. Uh, I'm just more and more impressed by it. I don't even know if there was a tradition. It was like just him. He was the only person that was able to pull off history in prose, but then as an epic, as if he was writing as Milton or somebody. It's just, it's mind boggling. I think, um, though, in terms of the fiction, I enjoyed the spread of this one more. Like just overall, the level of writing in the novels and short stories was more enjoyable especially mishima i really really enjoyed sailor who fell from grace with the sea um although i don't know i'm trying to think i think like overall the level of writing so far has been best in southern gothic but that's just because i think i have a little bit of a personal bias because i had never read a lot of the southern gothic authors before so it's like oh my god i'm being introduced to all of these masters from my own country um but i i don't know i've enjoyed all these we've done so far yeah i would definitely i'm leaning towards i actually think that the japanese um japanese literature at least the books that we read uh except for flannery o'connor i think um i think that um that mishima and tosin are both like uh they're probably the two best authors that we've read outside of flannery um as far as the fiction stuff goes um, Kawabata, I'm still, I'm still coming around to. I'd like to read more of his his stuff, um, especially after we watch that uh, that interview with him in Mishima. Um, I feel like I kind of missed the boat on Snow Country a little bit, um, but uh, I would, I would say I'm, I'm slowly working through a reread of uh, Satri, and I am enjoying it more. No way. Uh, How far in are you? Yeah, I'm very be- like very, very beginning. Oh man, that's hilarious. Um, I want to do Blood Meridian now because, like, now that I have stomach an entire McCarthy novel, I think I can get through the big one, the big gun one. So, I mean, Sutri's longer, man. If you, you made it through Sutri, you're gonna make it through Blood Meridian. Um, I know, but when we were talking about how the first couple pages are almost incomprehensible, and then how all of Blood Meridian is like that, yeah, it's like, oh, woof. That's true, but Blood Meridian has some some solid action too. Yeah, I mean, it's a Cowboys and Indians story. You can't go wrong with the Cowboys story. Yeah, I think you'd like the uh, the trilogy, the Border trilogy he wrote. Those are pretty good, too. Those, those are his most, like, normal books, aside from the recent two, which I think are bad books. His most normal books. The, I think The Road's a bad person. <laughs> Damn, dude. The hot fucking like, it's not. Although you said that last time. It's not a bad book. It's just a... But uh, in terms of, like, the quality of the novel, sorry. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, Tosan is, like, one of those, one of the best books I've ever read in my life. I don't know. That really stood out to me. And I, yeah, he's up there with, you know, like Tennessee Williams and Flannery, probably my two of my other favorite authors I ever read. Um, different. Authors. That book was just so focused. Yeah. Like it, I remember when we had the episodes on it, I was almost like, all right, we get the point, like move on from there. But since it was like the sole focus of the main character psyche, it makes sense. And then also, since it was easy reading, that means that it was really fucking hard writing. Um, so that's, right. that's another props to him. Like, it was just, yeah, it's extremely well written. I honestly wish we did, like, two or three more novels for this unit. That's my only complaint. We can do a uh, Japanese literature, too, and just fucking just bang. I mean, I read, um, I got uh, Kobayashi's The Crab Canary Ship. Nice. Uh, and that was another 
That was a that was crazy. I mean, the so the whole the premise of the story is that um, it's a story of workers on a crab canary ship, which is a very special ship um, that neither falls under um, Japanese jurisdiction nor international jurisdiction. So it's kind of like a perfect distillation of class relations. And Kobayashi was a communist. Um, And he, except for the manager in the story, um, nobody else has a name. And uh, there's a lot of we language. There's a lot of, um, uh, like, people are picked out for their physical qualities. Um, You know, like, the shape of their nose or their haircut. Uh, And... There's like some flaws in it, and I think Kobayashi's a bit too strong of an ideological writer uh, to be um, for like it. It kind of knocks it down a couple points for me, but I mean, I guess like my point is, is that it speaks to the literary tradition of Japan, uh, especially you know in the 20th century. Because um, thus far, I haven't read any novel that I am confident that I don't like. You know, that I'm confident that I wouldn't. Um, wouldn't give another go or um, like I said, feel like I, you know, I might've missed something. Uh, and most of the time it's just uh, it's, it's been a joy. I'd agree with that. I think for, I also want to read a couple more books. I'd be extremely down for a, a Japanese lit to Seppuku and Boogaloo unit. <laughs> where it, like uh, what was the one? It won the Nobel prize for literature it was about like a family that has a moral confliction because they have a severely mentally handicapped child and it's like Ooh, oh yeah that seems like that's a character piece for sure where it's just like sitting with them in their head but i'd really like to read that one and there was a couple others when we were choosing the books that we wanted that uh, i wish we had gotten to so yeah i've there wasn't any book that i disliked in this year I know I had my qualms about Snow Country, but that's my own personal grudge against modernism as a literary convention, um, and I don't need to rehash that. <laughs> um, Tom, I know that you you know you've read with the with us the foreign sci-fi stuff. I mean, um, and I remember you mentioning that you really enjoyed Yas as as we all did. Um, how do you feel like these authors stack up with the with the foreign sci-fi unit? I mean, for me, it's kind of like. It's like I appreciate both of them. I mean, I feel like the authors are completely different and the stories were completely different, um, obviously, based on the genre and, you know, Japanese literature kind of being very unique from what I'm used to. Um, Some of the same literary tools, but not at all. Like the point that they're trying to get across, I think like what you were talking about with Snow Country, that's an example of like a book that I didn't like the first time I read through it, but then I kind of thought about it afterwards and I was like, maybe I need more context and maybe I need to give it like a second read through and see what they're actually trying to get across and what the point is. And maybe I'd appreciate it more. Um, so I don't know, like I, I loved the sci-fi unit cause it was also something that I hadn't really, um, been exposed to too much, but this unit was that plus I I just thought that the variety was great. Like no two books seemed the same. It didn't seem like the authors were like feeding off of each other's ideas or styles. It wasn't super mainstream. It was like each one was very unique, um, very interesting, different ways that they, you know, made the setting and developed the characters and the conflicts they ran into. And the the cultural context behind it, you could see through most of them. 
but the stories themselves were just very um I don't know. I felt like they were very well written, very engaging. Um, and to you guys' point, I'd read five or six, 10, 15 more Japanese lit books. I mean, it got me very interested in just buying more and reading more. I, I liked it a lot, but I, I felt like the two units were completely different, but I appreciate them in their own ways. And like I said, there was not a single book that I'd look at and be like, oh, that was a crap book, where that did kind of happen in some of the sci fi books. Yeah, I, I will say that does kind of like um, after reading this specifically, like and it just came to me, it's like it does speak a little bit negatively to um, the quality of writing of at least the science fiction that we read. Um, not that everything needs to be great or whatever. Right. But I definitely didn't walk away except for, I would say, Yas specifically um, with, you know, kind of impressed by the you know you're impressed by the world building you're impressed by the ideas right but um not so much with just the general skill of the writer uh and that's just obviously not uh that that's not true at all for the japanese writers we were pretty much impressed with all of them uh but yeah i would say yas is the only one that like really you know caught my eye and that had more to or had less to do with him being like a great writer and more to do with him being a really engaging and um and funny writer um and compelling in like in a kind of colloquial you know uh relatable way rather than in you know this kind of like drenching emotional way um that we've we've talked about with the japanese literature and I don't think that's like ne- necessarily a facet of science fiction. I, I think we might have just struck out a little bit. Um, I think that the genre is capable of that. I mean, there's no reason it can't be. Like, there's not, there's nothing about like science fiction or the concept of science fiction that would make that not happen. I mean, do you know any books that are you would make say are comparable in uh, quality to the ones that we've read? No. <laughs> Oh. No, not really. <laughs> think... And you, you're you like a science fiction fan, right? So I guess they suck. Yes. Fuck. <laughs> Shit. I mean, I just think you just got to think about like that, you know, like it's kind of um, it, this doesn't make them bad. Right. But it's kind of like uh, like noir crime novels or something like that or like a detective story. Um, there are things about it that are engaging and interesting, um, but it's a little bit flashy. Right. A lot of it's based on do you have kind of a cool idea? to jump off your book not really are your characters um uh like are they fleshed out are they three-dimensional are they um something that could be related to and the points at least it seems like science fiction writers like harp on um and i would say in the soviet science fiction this was a little bit different um i definitely got uh with that that story about the robot um that was pretty powerful story um, and then obviously Planet for Rent as well. Uh, but there is like an over, there's a tropiness to the points that they want to make, you know, the either, you know, we're killing Earth or, you know, fear the technology or the aliens are coming, right? Like we've seen all this stuff before. Um, and, you know, like even like Broken Commandment, right? The idea of being specifically an ETA, this outcast class, um, and having that a secret, I mean, I've, there are people who have secrets that I, uh, you know, in other stories, but this specific kind of secret, a secret of identity, 
that you know can't come out at any at any cost right that was kind of a new thing to me it didn't really fit with anything that i've read before um whereas most of the science fiction like the themes that yas was getting at you know i mean i pretty much like i get it you know i've seen that done before well and i feel like and i just kind of thought about this but i feel like with science fiction a lot of science fiction it's it's not organic like it's an idea from somewhere else typically so it could be communism or socialism or capitalism or civil war or uh, technology. And then they take that idea and then they build up these characters and they try to form a story out of it, which is fine. Right. But with this Japanese literature and with a lot of other literary styles, it's very organic. Like it doesn't feel like the authors are having to try very hard to develop these characters because it's probably somebody that you know, they knew or that they were friends with or a story that is only one generation old that they're kind of um, reinventing and re-explaining. So the emotion and the situations of it feel very organic, which is one of the reasons I think A Planet for Rent kind of like was even better was because Yas was writing about his experience in Cuba and a, a mindset and a perception that he had in Cuba. And he turned that into a science fiction novel. Um, these Japanese writers are writing like with the Etta, they're writing about a class of people that they're familiar with, that they don't have to start reaching for straws to build a character because there's probably somebody they knew or something they're very familiar with that they can develop. So like the meat and potatoes of the story is already kind of there and then it grows organically as opposed to with sci-fi with I feel like a lot of sci-fi, it's reaching for something that typically is a trope. And then trying to build around that. So it just feels different. I don't really know how to explain it. I don't, I don't know that it has that, to be but... a trope, but it definitely like can sometimes lean into tropes. Whereas this unit in particular, and then most good literature, the reason that it's so good is that it focuses on like human emotion. And that's also why I feel like we liked Yoss the most. Yes, he had a cool world, but the focus of each of those short stories that was interconnected was how it affected the humans in it and the human emotion and reaction to it. And like that is something that is universal, whether you're in medieval Japan or reformed Japan, or if you're playing, uh, what was that space game they played? Voxel. The ball. Voxel. Voxel. Yeah, Voxel Ball or whatever it is. Like no matter what it is, if the point of the story is not about the setting or the cool idea, but it's about how all of those things affect the humans in the story, I think it's going to connect a lot more um, and be more considered more serious literature, whereas you're focusing on the robot or um, my dad is an antibody, although that was an excellent short story. That was fucking great. Right. Yeah. But that was also more of the writing and like to what you're saying, Troy is kind of, you know, hammering my my idea down is like, you know, Yoss was pulling from human emotions from something that he had experienced that he sees. So it flows naturally. He's not forcing anything. He's not like, oh, well, let me design a character with PTSD from a civil war, even though you know, I'm an American writer and our civil war happened in 1776, right? Like where mm. it feels like it's forced <laughs> and it's not fluent. Like it, where 
a lot of that sci-fi gets into that, which is like what you were saying, Troy, is like it develops into that trope because that's what they're leaning on is that that's how they're building their world as opposed to people and things and emotions and human reactions that are around them. They're not fabricating it. They're just expressing. Yeah, it's like they have really strong. uh, It's like Yas had very strong decorations or um, his aesthetic was um, was strong, but separate really from the story he was telling. I mean, he could tell that same story in a completely different way. Uh, It it wasn't those ideas that he had of like um, of the body um, swaps or whatever they were called. Um, and you know, in voxel and that, uh, fucking gruesome, the, the, the one with the stage performance where the guy killed himself the on death stage artist or the blood oh, or something. Like God, that. that was so fucking good. Um, but those were, you know, those were well pulled off and, and they definitely enriched the story, but it wasn't really the central point, right. That was being focused on. Uh, and I think, and maybe that's the reason why um, a three-body problem was so weak as a novel, was because it did have this excessive focus on the uh, the the thematic aspect of it of itself, of the aesthetic aspect of itself. Um, didn't pull that off very well, and then uh, left us with. Um, what was the detective's name? Ah, she. I don't like know. I was... just imagine him eating fucking tripe, dude. Yeah. Eating tripe and pounding like sake and hard liquor. Last cigs. Yeah. I mean, he was two-dimensional as everybody else, but he was more likable. But all the other characters were just kind of like, oh, okay, I get it. I mean, I would say the, the most emotional content I got out of that book was um, in the very beginning in the uh, during the Cultural Revolution. But outside of that, I mean, all the characters are very flat. The times when she was like, at post you know when she was at the the observatory before everything goes to hell when she has the husband the boyfriend or whatever that and he dies that's a little like hold on that's sad but yeah i really enjoyed the cultural revolution yeah. piece of the book probably most that guy shishin lu is a robot like that book is like a, if a robot wrote a book it would be that like there's he could be the uh whatever it is what were the aliens called Something really fucking dumb. The two-dimensional douchebag. The, uh, the the Trisolarians. Trisolarians, yeah, because it's the three stars. Very smart. <laughs> um, the um, what was I gonna say? Yeah, I just I, I agree with it with you. Like the his, it did feel very robotic. Um, that novel, and I am a bit surprised. It says like well-renowned. Um, as it is, I just I feel like there there has to be better things out there. I mean, there I, Philip K. Dick. I've never read anything by him, but he's supposed to be like the fucking tits when it comes to science fiction. Yeah, we need. Um, well, we did foreign sci-fi. We got to do a specifically an American sci-fi. There's be some. Fun. I got plenty of wrecks for that. We could read some Ursula Le Guin. I always liked her when I was. Oh younger. hell yeah, she's great. I she's one of if not she's like in the top five authors I've ever read. Yeah. Like in terms of writing it oh, so really? simply where it's like, wow, this is a kid's book. And then I'm like, oh, my God, this has one of the deepest messages I think I've ever read. Um, yeah, She's great. you should read the last book in the Earth Sea series is called The Other Wind. Um, it'll rock your world. It's a great book. I never read Earth Sea. Maybe we should do that. I haven't read any of those. It's good. Like it's meant for kids. 
um, and her map is a fucking mess. It looks like somebody vomited on the page in terms of like where the different islands are. <laughs> I don't know how she came up with her map, but uh, she has such a tight control over like the history of the world, how the magic works. Um, but then the message in the other wind is like about accepting death. And I was like, oh, damn. Like, and it doesn't even fully come together until the last like 15 pages. But it's it's a beautiful book. Yeah, he's a very talented writer. Wow. I mean, I also would say as a uh, as another sort of parallel, right? Like science fiction is kind of plagued by the same demons that fantasy is, and I think fantasy probably more so. Um, but I used to read a lot of you know the round of the mill fantasy novels when I was younger, and uh, I mean, talk about a tropey genre, right? Like, uh, at least I feel like in science fiction, it's kind of possible to rise above, but. If you're writing Tolkien fantasy, uh, it really doesn't matter how good of a writer you are. Like what you do will never be special. No, <laughs> and yet the, the thing is, it's it's because this is like a cozy, familiar genre. These guys just are able to crank novels that are not very creative, but you know, you drop a cookie cutter plot into whatever world you that you dream up. You take a huge, uh, a huge uh, influence from Tolkien, and like it's like entertaining enough to read, so it'll sell. Like the mass market's fantasy paperbacks, it's cute. I subjected a couple of weeks ago, I subjected Sam to a solid like 35, 40 minute rundown of my fantasy world. <laughs> Except I specifically wanted to not be Tolkien, where it's like, oh my god, they're taking the ring here and the eagles are going to fly them. It's going to be about like elves and dwarves, but it's going to be like race science and race war <laughs> so that it's more geopolitic. And, like, hopefully I can get it where it's just about the emotions of the characters. But, like, as I'm creating the world, it's like, oh, shit. Like, you have to have such a knowledge and control of everything. Like, the history, the culture, the religion, the language, the geography, uh, geology, climatology. There's just, like, it's endless. It's insane once you actually try to put it down. you ever read uh, Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson? I not a massive fan of his i really like his ideas but this like goes back to the tropes thing he's not that great of a writer like he does not hold a candle to any author that we have read in any of our oh no not even in the same planet i like i i enjoy his ideas a lot he's particularly good at like making magic systems that's like his specialty he comes up with cool magic systems but like I remember reading it and it was like, oh, my God, the dialogue, it, it was just so bad. I was like, I don't know. It just felt like middle slash high school reading level. And I was like, nah, like I just I don't know. There's too much other shit for me to read. And like I can find cool ideas and read a Wikipedia page about it. Like I would rather be reading Mishima than this stuff. I listen to him as an audiobook, like while I'm driving, which I think is probably about the level it's good for. But he does do a good job at world building, like cre- creative. Oh, yeah, very like, I was like, wow, that's that's something, man. Like he he pays a lot of attention to the economy, which is interesting. Whatever tangent. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Troy, the thing about your uh, your rant that I enjoyed was that, you know, I mean, I think it's fine enough if you if one includes the the you know, familiar and understandable characters of or races of elves, dwarves, gnomes, things like that. Um, but there is a serious lack of appreciation of what Tolkien 
did specifically, right? Like he created a whole mythos. Like he created a a, a an ancient, you know, storytelling fantasy from his head over a lifetime. Uh, and that just simply, I mean, you can draw from it, right? You can help, you can build his world in a way, right? But like to actually embark on the process of um, writing something like that is, it's, it, it's a, a task one must commit to, and it's very non-trivial to do that. And I feel like, you know, I haven't read Game of Thrones, but I feel like Game of Thrones is probably, you know, that would be the heir, right, of the the fantasy genre. Because um, Martin, to my understanding, actually does that, right? Like, he does take the time to to build and think out his, his entire world the way Tolkien did. So, I would agree, as but someone Tolkien... who actually... So good. Well, as someone who actually read all of Game of Thrones, I would agree with what you're saying. So I really enjoyed Game of Thrones personally. Um, Part of that was just the style that it was written in. You know, each chapter was from the perspective of whatever character. And through that, he built the world around kind of similar to Yoss in a way. Um, And I mean, you can say it's like fantasy similar to Tolkien. Um but it's it's also not because it's with the exception of the dragons um it's all humans dealing with humans and there's you know situations that a character might find himself in that is dealing with you know a population that has slavery and you know what happens when you liberate them and it's very wordy um he is very in depth with like if he's trying to get a point across it's going to take like 20 pages for it to happen and it's good um but that's not for everybody but to me like martin's the only fantasy author that i've read that i actually enjoyed it and felt like it was unique not unique in the sense that it's still fantasy so you're still in that type of mentality in that medieval world and knights and all that crap um but unique in the way that he wrote it and the way that he tells the story and the way he builds his characters and the way that the world is generated and the situations and the political aspects and um, everything that happens throughout the story is very well thought out and very well written, um, which it, it it's not like a lot of fantasy books where it feels like somebody took this outline that was created by somebody else, namely Tolkien, and then just kind of like builds their own idea of the world around it. Like it is very unique on its own. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I feel like that's a, it's fantasy, but it's fantasy that's actually written really well and is very engaging and is outside of like the norm that you would expect. I, I liked his book. I liked the, I liked the game of Thrones books pretty well. And I think that's a good point, Tom. And I think like what it is about him, I, I think his world building is not as strong as someone like Tolkien, but I think he, the humanity of his characters uh, is stronger. Like his characters are more human, more relatable, uh, in that, like, that's where that's, and I think that's why his books are so fun. Martin's books are so fun to read and engaging, and like why they emotionally connect to people because he is a much stronger dialogue and character writer than Tolkien is. Which is part of Tolkien is like the lens that you're looking at it, where Game of Thrones is very first person. You're sitting with the character who is the POV character for that chapter, whereas Tolkien, it's like. I don't know, it seems a little bit bland until you try to think of it in the view of it's Beowulf, where it's like, 
yes, you have the character, but it's more like you're looking at it from the outside in, and it's just like an epic tale that is being told. So you're not like focusing in on any one particular thing. It's just like this grand epic that is all happening. Whereas Game of Thrones is like 10,000 different characters, and you're with 12 of them consistently throughout these 5,000 pages. Um, now, I do think that Tolkien is like maybe like 60 to 70% of the way towards the world building that, uh, that Tolkien did. But Tolkien, like he has three speakable languages. Like just nobody's ever going to reach that level. It's just fucking insane. Like he's a scholar, a linguist, a historian, and then like on the side, he created a fantasy world for 35 years. Pretty fucking incredible, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's like the key difference between the two of them is it's Tolkien's an expert in a lot of things. You know, being a linguist, the way that he built the story, the way that he tells the story, that like epic journey novel of, you know, this is the grand adventure. And then Martin really focuses in on the people and the emotion and like things that you can kind of relate to. And through that is how he builds his world. But the world comes second. The people come first where Tolkien's more about the world. And then the people are just in the world, um, which I think is what makes them very unique to each other. I mean, I enjoyed both of them. I feel they're almost like apples and oranges, but they're kind of, the shining examples of two types of fantasy and then i feel like the Earthsea series is the third type that i've really been able i tried to read the uh oh god the blackwater company not blackwater blackwood black black something anyway there's like about a mercenary company and that's in a fantasy world a lot of people love that one i just couldn't get into it in the same way just because the world isn't as set like, if I'm having to try to accommodate and build the world myself, I feel like the world should just be there so that I can just sit with the characters wherever they are and I don't have to worry about the rest. I would love to read some Japanese fantasy. I'm sure it exists. Oh, I yeah. bet it They're exists. We'll get to uh, it, in, in, our, get to way, it in, yeah. our, in our hentai unit. Well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we should have done... A, I, I do think it would have been cool to do manga. Like a... Not like a full unit on it, but it would have been cool to read some of that crap. Well, I do think that we, we still need to do a debauchery unit for sure. All right, we'll do Tentacle um, Rape. Agreed. The fucking comic book or whatever. We'll do. We'll read the Tentacle Rape stuff. I want to, I've always wanted to read the uh, Marquis de Sade. Uh, yeah. The famous uh, debauchery writer of the uh, of France. But yeah, I think I think that would be a strong thing. We we can read like maybe a trashy romance novel or something like that. Be fun. I'm down. That can be a nice like short unit too. We don't need to have 15 books in that unit. You sure you don't want to read like the you know the complete history of smut? I mean, if it turns out to be a lot more interesting and engaging than I was expecting, sure, I'll continue to read it. But uh, from the small amount of reading I have done in the genre, it's not the best writing. Uh, you oh, I found a I found a cowboy uh, erotic novel from 1965 the other day while digging through piles at a thrift shop. It is awesome. Maybe I can we can just read that. Fuck yeah, dude. Can we get copies of it? Is that something you could get? I online? checked. Yeah, you can get copies for three bucks. Oh, damn. Okay. What's it called? Uh, I don't remember, and I'm not going to subject you guys to me digging through piles of books right now. 
But uh, it was hilarious, and I read like a sex scene where it describes him like screaming while busting. <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude! The only way to bust, really. How else is she gonna know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, on that happy note, we're an hour and 15 in, so um, this Can has been... Can we just do an... one Go last ahead. question? I feel like we have to in a wrap-up episode. It's just a real quick, like, what was everyone's favorite book from this year? Hell yeah, Tom. Okay. Good question, good question. You go first, Tom. So, um, okay. Uh, for me, it would probably be Sailor. I felt like that was the best written one. Um, or at least the one that I engaged with the most. I thought that was a very, um, I don't know, just a unique book. I think Mishima is a great author, and it made me really want to look into other things that he's written. Um, so I don't know. All For an all-around book, that was definitely my favorite. I agree. Mishima is my favorite as well. I also really liked, uh, of course, I can't think of the name of it right now, the one about the Ita. Broken Commandment. Broken Commandment. That one is that also really good. an incredibly good book. I think that one honestly had stronger plot and pacing. Um, but Mishima was just like so on the nose and on point about like the emotion and the longing. And it was like despairing, but also hopeful. But then also had like really good insights into like teenage boys and their mentality and like widow's mentality. There's just like such good psychology in it, in addition to being excellent writing that, yeah, I think Sailor was the best. Broken Commandment was easily my, my favorite book in the, in the unit. Um, one, of the, one, of, one of my favorite books I've ever read in my entire life. Something about it just really, you know, it got me. That book was the only one where I've ever like fully understood the reverence for like sensei and the mentor slash teacher role in Japanese culture was like the reverence that he holds. I think the guy's name is Inoko, the like older Ita that's published. Um, yeah, just the reverence that he holds him in and like the joy he gets out of seeing him and like the serenity of when they're just walking together in the mountains and looking at the snow covered peaks. Like, yeah, that's also, a, it's also a freaking fantastic book. Both of them are. It's just, re it's just remarkable. I don't know his, his ability to, I don't know, make the senses come alive, uh, the sensory experience that the, the characters are going through. I, don't, I can't think of any any comparison. I cannot think of a comparison that, like, hits as good. Well, now that Alex is saying it, like, to me, it's like neck and neck between the two. But it's like, I haven't read a book like The Broken Commandment that you literally feel what the character is feeling. Like when he's anxious, when he's nervous, that whole scene when he's like debating if he's going to use the last of his money to buy the book by his like idol, like and then his friend comes up and he's nervous about it and he's trying to hide it. Like you feel what that character is feeling in that moment. And it's not like it's not difficult to read through it. Like it's pretty simple the way it's written, but the way it comes across is just very powerful. And then also the surprise subplot of like, oh, the Buddhist priest is like sexually assaulting the girl that lives there. Like, I was not expecting that at all. I was expecting right. everybody to like catch him. But then it just like takes a complete left turn. And then it was just such a weird way that they portrayed it too. It was like, oh, he was weak again. He needs to like go and meditate. <laughs> it was like, uh, yeah, the, uh, the plot kept me going because it did not go where I expected. I mean, I also thought that all of the side characters were really strong. Um, you had the uh, 
the lowly, I forgot the guy's name, but the, the samurai who was drunk all the time. Mm. Um, his wife, who was a total His big. wife, <laughs> the best friend, um, the principal. You know, all of those characters, uh, they didn't have a lot of lines, um, but when they did speak, it felt very real, and you got a lot more insight into them. Um, but I, I will say you guys are you're missing really the best story of this whole thing. Which is um, a Kudagawa's Yam Gruel. Uh, <laughs> yes, of oh. course, of course. Uh, no, but in serious, I mean, I basically just agree with you guys. Like, I think um, the Stellar Fell from Grace with the Sea and Broken Commandment, like, you know, it's like one half dozen or another. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of like um, uh, when you're, it, it's kind of like when you're talking about like the greatest of all time at something. Uh, when you get to that kind of stratosphere of like really this thing really did what it was supposed to do kind of thing. Um, you know, you're really just splitting hairs if you're trying to actually rank them in one way or the other. And I just think, um, both Tosan and, and, uh, Mishima are such strong writers, you know, any ranking is more of an aesthetic preference than it is a comment on their, uh, on their skills. Oh yeah, for sure. My ranking is based on, an aesthetic preference as much as i dislike modernism i am a sucker for romanticism i just i fucking love romantic literature where it just hits on like the yearning of characters and like the yearning of the young boy for something that's like real and tangible but also dark because he's an edgy and evil 13 year old and then also the sailor like how he wants to be domesticated and just have a happy life but then how he also wants adventure and something that's like just beyond it's like oh god love that stuff give me more give me 500 pages more of that stuff <laughs> <laughs> i love that you fucking sap it's true I <laughs> um cool all right so we have we have a solid consensus all right so do your best to remember and i think if you remember it then it, it should be good but we'll make this a running question so all right so we have the best book of the unit how does what's your best book that we've read so far after completing our four unit streetcar okay all right why the i think it's like the perfect tragic story like the story of blanche the characters are extremely human i've read it since i don't know i think about streetcar all the time like i've loved a lot of the books we've read and like flannery o'connor i love and i've read everything she's ever written so a lot of it multiple times but I think about Streetcar Named Desire all the time. I don't know why. So it must be the best, dude. <laughs> dude. I mean, or you, or you're mentally ill. I think I'm a cr- dude. I aspire crazy. to be Marlon Brando in that movie Me too. all the time. Just the way he carries himself with that swagger, minus the rapey aspect, but like just the <laughs> swagger he carries with himself, and he's like so goddamn hot in that yep. movie. It's like one can only hope. Yeah, there's something just like the humanity like explodes off the page in that book. Like, it's just so raw, so real. Or play, whatever. Tennessee um, Williams is one of the greatest writers who ever lived. Agreed. Um, I would say so far, it's... Um, I have to sit on it more, but uh, I, I think um, The Violent Buried Away is where it's at. I think Sailor from Fell from Grace with the Sea and Broken Commandment are definitely, like, the in contention. But I have to, like, think about it more. But The Violent Buried Away just... The way Flannery O'Connor is able to weave in memory into her story in a way that's um, 
just disorienting enough for you to pay more attention, uh, but not so much that uh, it's too hard to follow. Um, and the the uh, the way in which she uses Christianity and this idea of of being a prophet um, as like a source of insanity, but also as like a way to make a very um, uh, a strong and relatable point, right? Like the characters that she's focusing on are all broken and, and insane in in some way, but um, you know, through them, right? The the grace and the punishment of God is like revealed. And I just, I don't know that the whole story was just so fucking good. So I'm going to stick with that for now. The violent buried away. Yeah. I agree that the, I, I still think the violent buried away is the best book we've written read so far. Uh, well, I we just, totally wrote that. <laughs> I just, uh, I agree with you, Sam, the, uh, and then the other ones would be Mishima and Tosan are the ones that are like in the contender. They're the podium placers for number two and three. For me, it's just Flannery also has maybe I just understood it more because she's from my culture. But the idea of like the Christ haunted place, like not everybody loves Christ, but just the Christ haunted area and how much I like could feel that in the characters and everything you had just said, Sam, about like the prophet and then also the there's like different hucksters and like everybody is using religion and just like the theme of religion the theme of memory but then also i think the what puts it above for me is like the layers to her plot whereas both mishima and tosan it's kind of the story is just told front to back um whereas the violent bear it away there's a lot going on you're in multiple character psyches you're in multiple different timelines and then also there is layers to understanding it from primarily the teacher's perspective the boy's perspective and the old man's perspective and having like all of that together plus the imagery plus the excellent prose is just like yeah she's another one one of the best authors i've ever read and jesus christ that fucking first chapter where he's burying the old man Mm -hmm. like that's like that just that chapter alone is one of the best fucking things to have ever been written. That chapter too, <laughs> I, something I just think about off. I don't know if you guys do this, but like things I've read, well, I'll just like fixate on or like think about over and over and over again. And that chapter is certainly one of. I don't know why. I also did. I kind of like had a Flannery. I don't know moment when we were reading it. I decided to read uh, what was her other one, Young Blood, and then like a bunch of her short stories. I also think A Good Man is Hard to Find is along with The Dead by Joyce, probably the best short story I've ever read. And I just hold her in incredibly high esteem that both her novel and short story, she's one of the best authors. She, yeah, I mean she's like the the king of American literature, queen, whatever. Oh, she, she king, can, all right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, her short stories, I think, are even stronger than her novels, and I love her novels. But I agree. Yeah, I think her short stories are stronger. I read, like, five of them. They're all excellent. All Dog, we should just do a unit just reading the entire collection, because Sam gave me the... What is that called, man? The the Library yeah, of America one? Yeah, and I read through that whole thing. Um, and it's just, like, maybe a few of the earlier ones when she was in college are, like, you could call them slightly weaker. But, like, that's a stretch. They're just weak in comparison to where she gets you know it yeah it's unbelievable the uh the immigrant or whatever is a really good one too 
uh, in terms of like, was that what it was called? The displaced person uh, or something? Yeah, I, I read a few of them, although I do have a funny Flannery O'Connor story. So um, when I was flying back from Texas one of those times, I had Flannery O'Connor with me and um, and I was, uh, you know, bouncing around that the Library of America version has a lot of her letters and um, and the short stories. And so I'm sitting at like this diner in, in O'Hare in Chicago and I'm, I'm going through it and um I was reading one of her letters and it was talking about how her um her like the short story that she is most proud of the short story that she thought was the best was um the title's the artificial n-word um and uh so I'm I like I'm like oh okay cool and then I go and turn to it and it's just like I'm like in the middle of a place with a bunch like you know I'm being served by a of black woman waitress and i'm just like oh wait 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 i can't actually read this right now <laughs> <laughs> um, tom what did you think of all the so of the books that we've read so far um well so i didn't get to read flannery so i can't necessarily comment on it but i'm absolutely going to have to now um so i mean if i if i legitimately had to pick it would be between uh tosan and mishima but just to be different i would say I'm just going to say A Planet for Rent, not because it's the best book, but because it's the only book thus far that it literally came in. I read the back of it. You know, I'm like getting familiar with it. I had a little bit of time. I'm like, okay, well, I'll start it. So I read the first chapter. I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. It's not bad. And by the time I started the second chapter, I almost just couldn't stop. It was just like something about that story really stuck out to me. Um Part of that's probably just my preferences of what books I typically read, like leisurely. Like that's a book I would pick up and just read for fun um, with no motive and not really trying to look into anything. Although you do get a lot of insight and and it makes you think about Cuba um, and the circumstances that, you know, caused him to write it. But it's just the only book that I so far that I picked up and I almost just couldn't put it down. I mean, I finished it the same day. I didn't have enough time in that first sitting but I went and did what I had to do. And then that night I read the rest of the book. So for me personally, I really thoroughly enjoyed that book, but I will also admit it's not the best written book and it's not the best book that I read for me. It'd either be sailor or broken. Command. I think plan of rent's a pretty strong choice. And um, we haven't read too many things that, you know, you would call modern writing um, or not modern, but like contemporary to us. Uh, and that's definitely one of the stronger books I've read that we would say is like a, relatively new release for sure yeah no for sure and i'm definitely not putting it down i'm just saying like if i'm picking like a grade a book um we've read some other books that are better than it but for me personally it's like that half step below it and it's like splitting hairs i just to me i just thoroughly enjoyed that book i would read it three times four times five times doesn't matter fuck yeah dude i will say though one thing that we have looked over of course is um we haven't mentioned we, we mentioned Carlisle before, but that's another that's another banger. It's kind of a whole different beast, so that's why I don't um, think of it when I think of like the best thing. But uh, certainly the scope of that was something, and I I'll I will end up reading that again one day, and um, and it will impress me even more. I think the fact that the whole manuscript was burned and that he had to rewrite it again. <laughs> 
Dude, I would have killed John Stuart Mill if that were the case. Like, just Fucking outright shot him. got my <laughs> pistol out, loaded the ball in the barrel, old school style, and murdered <laughs> him. And on that happy note, this has been a very long episode, friends, but uh, I think it's been good overall. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, next week, we're going to be um, taking a break from the units. Um, our next unit is going to be, the title of it is British Adventure. So it's going to be novels at the time of uh, um, decaying slash high imperialism of the British Empire. So British um, horror, if you're listening in Africa. <laughs> well, yeah, it's an African horror British adventure. Happy Halloween. Uh, or, yeah, happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, we're taking a break before we start that, and we're going to be reading um, Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. Um, and that's going to be a two-weeker. And then we're going to do a Halloween episode. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening, and have a great night. Bye. Good night, everyone. Good night.